Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Again, we are glad you're here today. Uh, out of the rain, man. It started thundering in the first service, and then we actually lost power for a moment. It was kind of interesting. But we just kept on kept keeping on. That's what we do. Well, we're glad you're here today. Um, it was mentioned earlier, I just want to encourage you, our summer group sign-up has begun, and there are a number of groups there. If you're not already in a long-term uh, life group, these short-term journey groups are there, and I hope you'll look at them. Uh, one that I'm co-lead has to do with uh, exploring Christianity. And if you're new to Christianity, or you've never really dug into it, or if you're exploring Christianity and you're not sure, uh, it's a great opportunity for you to, to dig in and gain some, at least some knowledge and, and, and maybe more. So hope that you'll consider that and some of the other studies that are, that are there. Uh, we, we also mentioned we're just a week away from the start of Summer Kids Club, and that is just huge for us. It's, um, it's so important, not just for our church family, but it, it is incredibly important for how we reach out and, and, and are agents of God's grace in our community as we help others experience the love and grace of God in their children and through their children, many of the adults come to find it for their own lives. So it's so important that we, we invite kids to come. Now, we're, we're always glad when we get kids from, that have come from other churches to be a part of it. So you take your kids to their VBS things and things like that, and that's okay. But really where we want you to focus and what you to think and pray about are those kids who have no church home. Because those are the ones we have the most opportunity to make a difference, to have an impact, to, to, to be used by God to transform their whole family. So I hope that you'll be thinking and praying about that as, as this next week comes and goes. There's a comedian named Emo Phillips who told about a conversation he had with a guy recently. And in the conversation, he asked the other guy, are you Protestant or Catholic? And his acquaintance, new acquaintance said, well, Protestant. And he must said, me too. Which franchise? Uh, Baptist? Me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist, he replied. Me too, Emo shouted. And this kind of went back and forth for a while until finally they're kind of working down the line and Emo asks, okay, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? And the new guy said, well, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And Emo replied, die, heretic, die. Uh, you know, it seems like sometimes we, we, can, we can get so caught up in the little bitty differences, and that, that had to be pretty small to go down that, that many s steps, and, and look at another denomination and dismiss them or not understand them, or be, feel like we're, you're in competition with them, all kinds of things. So this morning we want to just explore a little bit denominations, uh, religions. Those words sometimes are used interchangeably. Uh, maybe you grew up in the church and maybe some of that makes sense to you. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church and none of that makes sense to you. Hopefully a little bit of help here. And we're going to look at our language first because we get confused sometimes by terms. So in the series, what do I do when you... You asked, and we're going to try to answer today, what do I do when I can't make sense of denominations? It's going to be a, a broad overview. I mean, I just want to be, say that up front. I'm not intending to get into major areas of controversy. Um, I, I'm trying to simply give you a big picture, which can maybe help, under, help you understand and deal with some of the confusions about denominations or religions that sometimes we encounter. And I, don't know, I won't be spending time really comparing religions or denominations in any kind of depth or detail. So to define terms, because what I've found is some of the terms that we use, we, we use them and they mean more than one thing. So I'm going to define them in a very specific way, what I would call sort of more uh, traditional or, or classically or technically accurate. So first, the word religion. A religion is an organized system of beliefs, ceremonies, and rules used to worship a god or group of gods. And this is a, a, an important distinction I really want to point you to because 
it's pretty common today and popular, and I, and I found myself even doing it. Sometimes we use the word religion to, to refer to some of the rites or, or activities of a faith that just seem to be kind of rote, that don't seem to, to really, they're just kind of, you're just checking the box. You're kind of going through the numbers. And, and for our purposes today, that is not what we're talking about. We're talking again about a much more technical, historic understanding of the word religion as being one of many belief groups like Christianity, like Judaism, like Islam, like Buddhism, like Hinduism. So we're talking, when I use the word religion, I'm using it in that sense to talk about those big, big tentpole religions. Within that are denominations. A denomination is a subgroup within a religion that operates under a common name and tradition and identity. So we talk about within Christianity, we're, which is what we're, we most know, uh, we're talking about Southern Baptist or Northern Baptist, according to the story, United Methodist or African Methodist Episcopal. We're talking about Roman Catholic or Presbyterian Church USA, some of those kinds of things. Um, and we're also talking about churches that, that use the non-denominational label, that the sense that they don't fit into any denomination. And, and yet they still fit into broad groups within Protestant Christianity by their beliefs, by their structure. And so in some ways they do function at least as denominations, even if they don't use that language. The, the third term I, I'm uh, defining is cult. And a cult here is a group, church, or organization whose central teachings and or practices are claimed to be biblical or representative of biblical Christianity, but which are in fact unbiblical and not Christian in nature. And so uh, most of Christianity would consider groups such as the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Unification Church to be cults. Now I'll come back to those, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in denominations in a, in a few moments. But before I do that, I, I want to walk us through kind of a brief history of Christianity and denominations, because if you kind of understand where things came from and what caused things to be the way they are, it, all of it may make more sense to you. Um, and, and I'm focusing on, just to be specific, I'm focusing now on the religion of Christianity. Not the religion of Islam, not the religion of Judaism, but the religion of Christianity. Um, the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us the story of Jesus. And they end with Easter, his resurrection, and the, the few days after that. Um, and we, we celebrate that. And the Bible tells us that for 40 days, Jesus was here on earth in his resurrected body before he then ascended into heaven. And 10 days later, or 50 days after the resurrection, is a holiday or a day called Pentecost, P-E-N-T-E-C-O-S-T, -E -E where penta means 50. And this experience is recounted in the book of Acts. Uh, and we've got a picture, and I, you'll notice it kind of looks like flames up there. Let me, and when you read, you hear Acts chapter 2, you'll understand. It says, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. There's only about 70 of them at this point. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty wind storm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So when we talk about Pentecost, when we refer to that passage, we are talking about the birthday of the church. The birthday of the church didn't begin actually with a resurrection. It began with the coming of the Holy Spirit to enliven and unite the people of God together in one community of faith. And the power of God itself was at work in it. In the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit coming for particular people, for particular tasks, for particular times. But at Pentecost, what we see is the Holy Spirit coming into all believers, all followers of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at then at the rest of the book of Acts, the, the, the latter part of chapter 2 and the rest of the, the chapters and the rest of the New Testament, 
It's about the church. Told through Acts, told through letters from apostles such as Paul and Peter and John and James. And the the New Testament then ends with the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, which most scholars believe was written by the Apostle John around 90 or 95 A.D. And at that point then, we end the age, of, if you will, of the apostles. We end the age of the writings of the Bible. And we move into what some have called kind of the period of the early church as it began to spread. Now, the early church began here in Jerusalem. And, and it begins, begins to spread. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it talks about spreading to Jerusalem and Judea, the land around it, and, and, and then Samaria, and then to all the world. And we start to see that. These dark blue blotches are in the first 300 years where they start to appear communities of Christians. And then 300 to 600, they go even further. And then after 600, even further. And you start to see this spreading out from this one spot, this starting spot, where Jesus was uh, crucified, dead, buried, and rose from the dead, and where Peter uh, gave this speech, and the day of Pentecost came. Um, It's in this time period, then, that we start to see, as Paul started some of these churches, and other Christians started leaders in some of these churches who gained the title of bishop. And, and uh, the Bible talks about bishops and, that, and the authority and the uh, requirements of that. And some of these communities start gaining bishops, especially as you move west. Uh, you come to Rome, which was the head of the empire, the Roman Empire. So it was a significant place. So over the period of the early church, over the next few hundred years, these bishops would get together and, and work on doctrines and work on dealing with heresies and people teaching things wrong. And what happened is these bishops initially were all of equal rank. But over time, probably because the, 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 the uh, nation or the uh, empire of Rome was centered here, the bishop of Rome began to take on more and more weight, authority, say. And, and from that, we eventually gained, they start using the word pope. Initially, the pope was not... There wasn't, this guy was just like initially the most important. Initially, several of these bishops were all in the same category, but they recognized some, the, the, for various reasons some significance there, and so that began to evolve and change. Um, we come to the Middle Ages, the 500s to the 900s, the church is rocking along, but the, the, the church in the Western region uh, begins to take on a little bit of its own flavor based out of Rome. The church in the eastern region begins to take on its own flavor, still kind of located in, in this area. And there begins to be some tensions that arise between east and west, tensions over the authority of the pope, but also theological tensions. So that what, what some have called the great schism of the church in 1054 A.D., So we're talking now a thousand years after the time of Christ. Up until that point, there's been only one church, uh, essentially one church. Now there is a split of the Western church into the Roman, because here's Rome, that was the seat of the church, the Roman Catholic. And and here's the thing about the word Catholic. Uh, Many of you grew up Catholic. Some of you didn't. Some of you love the Catholic church. Some of you are very uncertain about it. Some of you, when you've heard creeds like an, something called the Apostles' Creed, and it says the Holy Catholic Church, you don't even want to say it because you don't think you should be affirming simply one church. But here's the thing. In that creed, the word Catholic is actually lowercase. It's not uppercase like a name. It's lowercase because the word Catholic meant universal. Initially, it was the universal church. But then when we come to the split... They, uh, it continues to be called the Roman Catholic Church, the Catholic Church centered in Rome, the Western Church. And over here, the, the Orthodox Church becomes known as the Eastern Orthodox Church, centered in Constantinople, which is right up here. And that becomes kind of the center of that split. Now, it doesn't affect you and me a whole lot because most of us aren't exposed to Orthodox churches. Most Orthodox churches in modern times are in this part of the world, the Roman, uh, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, 
the Armenian Orthodox Church. There are a number of those over here. You will see a few of them. There are a couple of three congregations of Orthodox churches in Houston, but they're not very common. So you may, it's a whole part of Christianity that you may not even be aware of that sits out there uh, that is more centered in, in Eastern Europe and Asia. So over the next few centuries, now we're going to focus on the Western church, the Roman Catholic church, because this is where our heritage kind of comes from. There begin to just continue to grow more questions and concerns about the authority of the Pope, and what what he start they started to do something called selling indulgences. They were doing that it as a way to reduce the amount of punishment that one had to undergo for one's sins. But there were some some theological questions about that, so that in on October thirty first, fifteen seventeen, no, it was not the first Halloween. October 31st, 1517, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther, and it wasn't Martin Luther King, that would be several hundred years later, Martin Luther nailed to the front door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, a work he entitled 95 Theses on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. Um, and here's a picture of him doing this. The, the, the front door of the church was kind of the place where you put notices in a, in a local community. And this church was a Roman Catholic church. And he is nailing 95 theses, 95 concerns or questions he has about how the Roman Catholic church is doing certain things as he has studied scripture. He's a scholar, he's studied, he's tried to dig into it and has some, some very significant concerns. Uh, and so it, it, that day, in effect, began what is called the Protestant Reformation. That, it, that is, it was a protest movement against the Roman Catholic Church, as well as perhaps being a reformation or a reforming of the Catholic Church, though that did not actually happen. And that's why sometimes if you look at your calendars, or in some of you who grew up in churches that grew up like in a Lutheran church, you'll know that October 31st is not only Halloween, but it is also called Reformation Day. Reformation Day. And what's even more significant for us is this year will be the 499th year since that happened. And so what we see coming in uh, 2017 on October 31st, there'll be some celebrations around the world for the signing, uh, for the posting of this document and the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And then from there, over the last 500 years, you get more breaks within the Protestant realm. Now, so here's kind of an overview. Here's early Christianity. Here, here we are for a, a thousand years, the first half of our time as Christians. We're essentially one church, a couple of small splits, but they're fairly small in the big picture. Well, we come to the great schism right here, which breaks into Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. Then, as we just talked about, 500 years later, we come to the Reformation. Another split that started with Martin Luther and some others, and out of that, uh, King Henry VIII and Anglicanism. Uh, John Calvin was a theologian who helped understand some of these changes. The Anabaptist movement even later, the Restorationist movement in the 1800s in America. And you start to come up with all these Protestant groups and denominations that grow out of that. Starting from here, tracing their path, path all the way across there. Now, the Protestant Reformation itself centered on three doctrines that were originally stated in Latin. That was the kind of the language that was the written language of the day. And they were sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Sola fide, which means faith alone. And sola gratia, which means grace alone. And the key word here in all three of these is alone. That the authority and the understanding is founded in those things. Because here's the thing, the Catholic Church did not dispute that Scripture was authoritative. They believed in the importance and the value of it, but, but they said that the Pope and the Church were also authoritative. And then there was, there was a, a, a similarity of authority. And in some cases, the Pope actually had carried higher authority than the Word of God. 
So Luther and the other reformers, in reading and studying Scripture, discerned that God was revealing through the Bible that it was, in fact, the authority for, for God's will for all things related to faith and practice. Uh, we read in Scripture, 2 Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So the understanding was the ultimate authority through the Protestant Reformation had to come back to God's word. And that's why from that point on, it's interesting that only a few years before, Gutenberg invented the printing press, which started to make God's word available to the masses. And people began learning to read. All of these things happened together. They were all part of, of a bigger picture. Um, it's not that there aren't other levels of authority. I mean, on a, on a very much lesser scale, a, a pastor of a church carries some authority within that church. Uh, not to the degree of, of, of a bishop or something like that, but there, there are some of that. And the Bible says those other kinds of authority are important. Um, but it is revealed through his word that it is the most significant of those places of authority uh, versus any person or any, any entity such as the Pope. Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, Please hear me, that for, for today's purposes, I'm not bashing a pope. I'm not bashing uh, the Roman Catholic Church. I am simply recounting history, granted, from the standpoint of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, this is a Protestant church. We're a part of that stream. So looking at it from our understanding and, and looking back to see that certainly in the 1500s, and there have been many reforms since then, but certainly within the 1500s, there were some real concerns with Catholicism. See, Protestants believe Scripture alone has highest authority, given to us by grace alone and received by faith alone. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Interestingly, the Protestant Reformation did not form a single church, um, but several different churches based on side differences and in interpretations of portions of Scripture, locations, geography, and things like that. And so we have here one picture of logos of, of a number, but by no means uh, all the denominations by any stretch. Um, but there was an analogy, as I was reading on this this past week, an analogy that was very helpful for me to think about denominations uh, in terms of different baseball teams, each with its own coach. Each coach leads according to a certain set of principles, what he thinks is best for producing the best team. And he can say his way is best, he can say his way is right, but there are other coaches who would disagree with him. And the fact is, though, that all of them are still playing baseball. And they are playing them by the same fundamental set of rules. The same, the same foul lines always apply. Okay? But within those, the context of those, those rules, there are a variety of emphases, different strategies that can be used to play the game. But the fundamental game is still the same. Protestant Christianity is a lot like that. There is a fundamental core of beliefs and teachings that identify any particular denomination as being Christian. But in matters like method of baptism or uh, the way you organize the church's government, there, there can be differences of interpreting biblical principles. There can be regional or even cultural differences. There can even be different emphases. Uh, one church focuses in one area and one focuses in another. And a phrase began to appear um, somewhere around 100 years after the Protestant Reformation. And when I use this phrase, it, it's not in the Bible, so it does not have that kind of weight to it. But it, it was help, it's helpful in, in thinking about differences among denominations. The, the phrase says, and it's in your notes, 
in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, let me unpack that just a little bit. In essentials, unity means that there are certain doctrines or foul lines, if you want to think of it like that, certain convictions which genuine Christians believe, regardless of the denomination, regardless. They are essentials, which were basically affirmed in the Bible and in the few, first few hundred years of the church. And we often use a word, and it's a, it's, I confess it's a little bit confusing because um, it's used in two different ways. We use a word called orthodox. And, and we can use that word, and sometimes orthodoxy, um, not necessarily to refer to then the denomination, the Eastern Orthodox, but in fact to talk about belief. In, in Greek, the word orthodox means right belief. And, and so orthodoxy points to that. In fact, in your notes, the definition of orthodoxy, it is the body of essential biblical teachings. Those who embrace them should be accepted as Christians, as what does it mean to, to be a part of that core. And it's not every belief. There are some typical orthodox beliefs or essentials that would be true regardless of, you know, I showed you a bunch of denominations that would run across all of those denominations. For instance, there is only one God who exists as a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Next, <coughs> oh, excuse me, that came out of the blue. <coughs> Sorry. Next, the deity of Christ. In other words, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Sometimes when we're talking about Jesus, we're trying to think, okay, we say he was God and man. So what was it? Was it 50-50 or maybe 60-40 or 30-70? The testimony of the early church based on what we see in Scripture is that it was 100 a hundred. Now, those of you who know your math, you know that that doesn't work. But that's not the point. This is the this is the revelation. This is the testimony of what we see: that Jesus was fully man and fully God. And there are a number of scriptures in your notes that you can read to see more of that. The, the next thing is the gospel itself: that Jesus freely died for our sins and was physically resurrected from the dead offering eternal life or heaven to those who believe. Finally, salvation itself is from God. It's a gift from God through Jesus Christ, freely offered to us by grace and our acceptance through faith. These are what I would call typical essentials that if you're a Roman Catholic church, if you're a Baptist church, if you're a Methodist church, if you're a Christian denomination, these are defining essentials. The next phrase is non-essentials, liberty. It means that beyond these essentials, these, these orthodox beliefs, if you will, that are necessary for salvation, there are issues that are important, but they don't distinguish someone from being Christian or not. Or, uh, so there's room here for some disagreement like method of baptism. Some of you were baptized as an infant with somebody sprinkled water on it. There are other people who will tell you, that's not baptism. If you weren't stuck under the water all the way, you weren't truly baptized. And there are those kinds of conflicts, or how do you organize a church, or the style of worship music, or the role of women in the church, that the Bible talks about those things. There are some strong beliefs, but there are good Christians who, who adhere to the essentials who see some of that differently, and that there is room within orthodox Christianity for those differences. The fact of the matter is, if we took it down to the individual, even a husband and wife sitting next to each other, you can say, there's some things you don't see exactly the same. So it's not surprising that on a denominational level, there are some of those things. But they still agree with the essentials. Finally, we come to the last phrase, in all things, charity. And that means that if you don't agree on some essentials, or even you do not agree on some non-essentials, that we are still to treat each other, to treat all with love and respect. And depending on the degree of difference, we might be willing to join together with them in mission, or we may choose not to. 
But yet, ultimately, love is always the guiding principle for the Christ follower. Love, Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor. That's, that is always, we, even with people we disagree, even with people we think are wrong, we still are, are followers of Jesus, and, and love becomes our defining lifestyle, regardless of how another believes. And yet, as much as possible with those with whom we agree on the essentials, we make every effort to be united. In Ephesians, it says this, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Now, let me just say a word here about cults because it's important to understand some of the differences. I said earlier, cults take some of the essentials, in effect, and they either twist them or they distort them or they deny them altogether. And and again, when I'm using the word cult, I'm using it as a technical definition. I'm not talking about, well, there's a group of folks that you think are crazy that live out on an island somewhere and we're calling them a cult. Maybe so. But here, what I am talking about is a group of people who espouse at least some Christian beliefs and typically claim to be Christian or see themselves a part of that, and yet they don't adhere to the essentials in, in, in some small and some big ways. For instance, Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and I know we have a, a few people who have come out of the Jehovah Witness Church as a part of our congregation. The Jehovah Witnesses do not believe that God is... Uh, a, a triune God. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They do not believe that, that Jesus is God. And, and in fact, if you would look, one of the places you can see that is actually in their version of the Bible. In, in Protestant and Catholic Bibles, you will see it says, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word is God. In other words, there is a direct connection that God is Jesus, Jesus is God. We don't fully understand this whole triune thing, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but there it is. It's testified to throughout Scripture. The Great, Great Commission says, go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All right, in a, in a, in a Jehovah Witness Bible, it will read something like this. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God with a little g. Because they don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe he came after. He's important, he's valuable, but he's not God. And that, at that point, it moves away from the essentials of what it means to understand Christianity. Or the Mormons. And many people say, well, Mormons, they're so wonderful people. They, have, they, they do so much good. Yes, they do. And this is not to say anything negative about individuals, but, but, but understand that if you take Mormon beliefs out to where they go, then their point is that God is just a, the God who's gotten furthest along in the journey and that our goal is all to become gods, little g gods, and that we work at that through our good works. Not faith, it's not one God, and in terms of authority, whereas Christians would say ultimately God's word is our final authority, they would say, well, but we have this other book that was written in the 1800s or the 1700s, and we believe that in some cases it trumps God's Word, the Book of Mormon. And at that point then we start to say, okay, you're entitled to that, that's, that's fine for you to believe that, but understand that historically the way Christianity has understood itself in terms of what is orthodox, what is right belief, that now steps over the line. So let me, let me kind of give you a, a, a graphic, just a way to think about it, okay? This is far from perfect. But let's, let's call this Orthodox Christianity. Not the Orthodox Church. I admit it's confusing. But Orthodox Christianity. This is, the, this is where those essentials lie. Now, if I'm talking about Judaism, or Islam, or Hinduism, or Buddhism, they stand outside of this essential, okay? If I talk about uh, a Methodist church or a Roman Catholic church, 
or a Southern Baptist church or a Lutheran church, what you see is they, they're not the exact same, but there's a lot of overlap. A lot of overlap. In fact, what I would tell you, what I've, it seems to me over the years as I've witnessed is that, is that when I sit down and I talk to a, a, a Southern Baptist brother, and, and I'm a United Methodist, and I talk to a Southern Baptist brother, and, and we start talking about it, I don't know how to quantify it, but I would say 96, 97, 98% of our beliefs are exactly the same. Now, we may emphasize a little bit different, and there are one or two differences, but those differences still fall within Orthodox Christianity. We're still brothers in this. We're still on the same team. We're still working toward the same thing. We're just, there are enough differences that we have aligned or affiliated ourselves a little bit differently. That, to me, is a way of thinking about denominations. Now, what happens, though, when I introduce a cult? A cult sits out here. It picks up some of the Christian doctrine, but it also picks some up, up some other things that are outside the lines. And, and there are some groups, like somebody asked me about Scientology or, or something like that, and there are some groups that they're not, they're not trying to be cults. They're different religions altogether. But there's some that claim Christianity or claim to be affiliated with Christianity or claim to be highly related to Christianity, and yet there are some different, there's some overlap, yes, to varying degrees, but there's also some significant differences in the orthodoxy, in the right belief, in, in what distinguishes, you know, so that when we're like playing baseball, you, you, you kind of need that because if you don't have, for instance, foul lines, if I hit the ball and it goes back that way, it's really hard for one of the outfielders to catch the ball in the third level there at Minute Maid Park. So what do we do? We say, okay, you can't hit the ball just anywhere. It's got to be within the foul lines that run along first and third. And sometimes they've got those, those poles at the end with little things there, and you're watching it. Is it, is it going to be in? Is it going to be out? Is it going to be in? Is it going to be out? And sometimes it bounces and goes in, and sometimes it bounces and goes out. We need some structure. You need structure in your family. You need structure in your work. And God has given us structure in terms of understanding what is true Christianity and what starts to step outside and then therefore can be misleading therefore can lead someone to think they are putting their faith in something that can lead them to heaven when it cannot because it's pointing them in a totally different direction as you dig more and more into it so just kind of a a, a visualization and here's the thing i would tell you and another another analogy is all these denominations are sort of like different flavors of ice cream Okay? Bluebell's working on it. They, they, I just heard they got a couple more flavors in as of yesterday. I think they had at one point over 100 flavors, okay? All right. What distinguishes, you know, homemade vanilla from natural bean vanilla, from French vanilla, from Rocky Road, from pralines and cream? Well, there's some, there's some little differences, but there's still ice cream. There's certain fundamental things about how they're made, what goes into them, what are the ingredients that distinguish them from yogurt, from um, ice, or whatever else. It's ice cream. And, and to me, it's helpful to think about denominations kind of more in that regard. So here, here quickly some, some issues and some affirmations of denominations, and these are in your notes. First. We need to recognize Jesus prayed for the unity of the church. He said in John 17, I pray that they will all be one just as, and he's talking to God the Father, just as you and I are one. See, there's that, there's that Trinity idea of God and Father and Son are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And that may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Now, we can take this a step further and recognize, though, that there really is no scriptural mandate for denominations. You can look through your Bible, you will not see a place that says that you should have these. 
This is how God intends it. And the Apostle Paul, in fact, warned about getting too drawn into personalities and factions. He wrote to the Corinthians, some of you are saying, well, I'm a follower of Paul, or others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. He's saying, don't get caught up in that stuff. Jesus is the church. Jesus created it. He is its founder. He is its, its whole point. And so we see this. At the same time, we see that there's no express command throughout Scripture against denominations. And we, we can admit that unity does not require uniformity. Jesus prayed for our unity, but he didn't pray that we would all be the same, but that there would be a unity, Christianity's core beliefs or essentials for salvation found in Christ himself. And Paul warns that some of these non-essential, some of these personalities can sidetrack us from what matters most. And this is where cults often sway people, as they allow individuals to take on greater authority than the Word of God. And yet, finally, at the same time, denominations do allow for legitimate differences about non-essentials within this big picture of orthodoxy. Not out here, but in, in here. Churches are, are made up of people who, who live in different cultures, who have different appreciations for traditions, who have different gifts and talents, who have different temperaments and passions. Look around you. Do you see anybody else that looks just like you? Do you see anybody else that has, the, has had the exact same life as you? Of course you don't. There are differences. In fact, the witness of creation, as you look at all that God has made, is that no two people are exactly alike, and God seems to love creativity and diversity. He intentionally has made people different, land different, planets different, solar systems different. So perhaps denominations are a way God's allowed that diversity to occur among his people in a fallen world, granted, within the essentials of the Christian faith as the way to express it and live it out. Perhaps there are opportunities for individuals to join with, with others of similar interests and, and calls to live out their gifts, their passions for the sake of the kingdom through one church versus a different church or one denomination versus a different denomination. And, and, and if there is some truth to that, which I believe there is, then it demonstrates why there is room for different denominations uh, and different worship styles and, and different church structures and different focuses of mission and different church sizes. It, it, it's to say that for, for some people, you know, we gather together and you come here because in part you love what, what's sometimes called contemporary worship or worship that uses a band. There are other people worshiping right now here in the Clear Lake area who are worshiping with an organ and a choir. And other people are worshiping with a guitar. And some people who worship with no instruments at all. And it's okay. The organ is not a bad instrument. Drums are not a bad instrument. Some of you grew up, though, and someone told you that the, the drums were the instrument of the devil. Right? Let me tell you, in the 1880s, they said the organ was the instrument of the devil. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? God really does love diversity and, and within, within boundaries, within those foul lines, and, and he loves to work that out through us. But, and this is what I want to encourage you about, what we always see throughout the New Testament is a commitment of Christ's followers to join together in a community of faith, to be a part of a church, to be a part of a church, and, and, and not just simply rock, rock along like it's okay. In fact, nowhere do you see a picture in the Bible of what I would call isolated Christianity or solitary Christianity. We are called together. Why? Because God teaches me through you. He teaches you through me. He holds the person next to you accountable through you, and you hold the person behind them accountable through you. It, it, all of this thing, there's so much interplay and so much intentionality in what God has done. 
And that's why you don't see solitary Christians operating in the New Testament. You see together in a community of faith. And here at Gateway, we're committed to those essentials of faith. We're, we are actually a United Methodist congregation, but our, our decision long ago was that we were going to focus on the essentials. And it's not that the other things aren't helpful and matter and we don't talk about them in, in, in some settings, but ultimately to say, Let, let's keep the main thing the main thing. And that's mostly what we do. We have, we have pastors on our staff who come from different denominational backgrounds. And so we understand some of those differences and we try to uh, avoid where there's contention so that we can focus on those things that, that the Christian community has always held as essential to faith and life and practices and salvation. And here we believe it's important, therefore, that we commit to Christ and therefore to a local church, to the body of Christ, to pray for it, to allow it to help us grow, to become more and more like Christ, or to become what we say in some of our language, fully devoted followers of Christ. We'll have a membership class in a few weeks, and you're welcome to look into that. But, but I want to tell you, you need to be committed to a church. If it's not this one, find another one. But you need to have a church family, a church home. That's the picture we see all throughout the New Testament. Also, we connect with other Christians in our church in particular, but also with uh, other Christians in the journey together. Just this last week, our missions area worked with what's called the Christian Outreach Alliance, a group of churches here in Clare Lake that put on a, a sports camp over by the, the, uh, the library uh, for, for children of the community to reach, in many cases, to reach children who had no church connection to do that together, that the witness was we were not just this church or that church, we were Christians coming together to reach out to them. We also serve in and through our church and support its mission and ministry through our prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. And we share our faith in Christ with others to invite them to receive that salvation, to enter into what God has done here and, and to, to experience the, the wonder and the adventure that he has intended for all of his people to find in this journey together. The church is God's instrument. I mean, it sounds crazy, and some of you want to you throw the church away. For whatever reason, God said, I'm going to create a church, and I am going to use it as my primary instrument after Jesus leaves this world, as my primary instrument to change the world. That's why the New Testament calls the church the body of Christ, to offer God's salvation to all people. And if you're a follower, being in a local church, which is usually in a denomination, is so important to living out God's plan for your life, to be a part of that. I don't think he said it first, but Bill Hybels, pastor of a large church in this country several years ago, said, the church is the hope of the world. It is, because the church is the body of Christ. Not, not, yeah, there's no perfect church, and, and we all mess up. I, I, I mean, I, I can be a hypocrite as good as the next person. And, and if you want a church that doesn't have any hypocrites, you better get out. And start your own. And let me warn you, as soon as you start it, you'll already have a hypocrite. Because that's just the way it is. We're not perfect. We weren't created to be perfect. Unfortunately, we were also fallen by sin. And through Christ, there is this hope, the hope of the world, that is, that is mediated through the church. That is, that is spread. We're, we're never intended to be a holy huddle. We're always intended to be out trying to win the game for the Father, for the kingdom of God, for the sake of the world, to transform it. You matter. Because believe it or not, you, you really are the hope of this world. The hope of Clear Lake, of Pasadena, of Nassau Bay, of League City, of Houston, of Galveston, of everywhere. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you that somehow you've entrusted this, this precious gift of yourself into a church and to us. 
who are fall far short of your glory, who sin, and yet you've chosen to work and through your Son to give us a means to overcome sin so that we can work in, in fellowship with you and in fellowship with other believers together. We pray, God, that you would use us as a body to change the world around us, to, to be involved in, in living for you day in and day out, that it's not about one hour a day, but 144 hours a week, that we are giving of ourselves to the world around us because you first gave yourself to us. You loved us first, and so we love. Father, we pray for your church, capital C, all the churches united together, and we pray, pray for your churches, little c, all the local congregations, the bodies of Christ through whom you are working today, transforming the world. Father, may we be committed to your church and may you use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you wanna to talk to our prayer team, they'll be right here for you. Don't forget Summer Kids Club to invite kids. If you're a guest, come meet us over here and join us next week for a great Father's Day. God bless you. See you next week. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.